Do turn with me in your Bibles this evening to the book of Psalms. In these evening times together when I'm preaching, I'm just making my way through the Psalter. And so this evening we come to Psalm 15. And let me ask you to stand with me as a sign of reverence once again for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word. This is the word of God, Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Normally, when you show up for worship on a Sunday, uh, you come in fairly leisurely. You get a bulletin off the back table, and maybe from whoever happens to be greeting you that morning, Uh, You engage in some small talk before coming in and finding your seats. Uh, Maybe you wander down the hallway. Uh, You see if there's any coffee left in the fellowship hall. You make sure that the kids have used the restroom. You have a couple more quick conversations before returning and readying yourself for worship. Now, I want you to just imagine for a moment that when you arrived for worship this evening, uh, rather than being met by greeters, you were met by guards. Uh, And before they would give you a bulletin, they wanted to know why you had come. So you answer, well, of course I've come for worship. And one of the guards asks, Who can come for worship? And before you can even begin to form an answer, the other guard answers with the words of this psalm. He who walks blamelessly, who does what is right, who speaks the truth in his heart. And he goes on and he finishes the psalm, but you're stuck on just those first three requirements. He who walks blamelessly, who does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart. And you know right from the outset that you have not made the cut, that you have not met that holy standard of perfection. Maybe you're standing there in your dismay thinking, and the words of Jesus ring out in your ears, therefore you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is required to sojourn in God's tent, 
to dwell on God's holy hill. There's a very real sense in which the design and organization of the Old Testament tabernacle with its priests standing guard communicated this very thing to the worshiper. Uh, There's this interesting and wonderful little tidbit Uh, that the same word that is used of the angel with the fiery sword that guards the entranceway into the Garden of Eden, God's holy hill, is the same word that is used of the priests who guard the way into God's presence in the tabernacle. The whole system of worship communicated this very thing. It communicated that God is perfect and holy, And that because of your sins, you had been separated from him. It communicated that you cannot just show up for worship and presume that you will be granted admittance any more than Adam and Eve could show up at the gates of the garden and presume that they could come in. It communicated that worship is serious business, that God is not to be trifled with. The tabernacle with its courts and gates and guards all communicated this in a way that could not, you could not fail to understand. It also communicated another reality. Because there in that first courtyard was a giant altar of sacrifice where an offering might be presented in your place. There was a way to come into God's presence but it was not without the shedding of blood. And so if you were not spotless and nobody was, you had to come and to bring an offering to gain entrance. Psalm 15 begins a series of psalms that are arranged chiastically. uh, And that means that there is a bookend with the psalms moving toward the center. And the bookends of this arrangement are Psalms 15 and Psalm 24, which both consider this question, who can come and sojourn in God's tent and dwell in his holy hill? And as David composes this psalm, he invites us to contemplate with him this very question that he considers And in doing so, uh, not only to contemplate the question, but to contemplate our own conduct. And as we contemplate our conduct, contemplate whether we can with confidence stand in the presence of God. And so those will be our three points this evening. First, the consideration of the righteous, uh, as we consider this all-important question about who can abide in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Secondly, we we will think about the conduct of the righteous as we consider the kind of conduct necessary to stand before the presence of God. And then finally, we'll consider the confidence of the righteous as we consider the confidence that the righteous have to stand in the presence of the Lord. The consideration of the righteous, the conduct of the righteous, and the confidence of the righteous. Uh, the, the confident, or excuse me, the consideration of the righteous is set before us right in this first verse as the, the question is addressed by David to the Lord. O Lord, O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Uh, the tent is, of course, a reference to God's tabernacle, 
the place where God was in the midst of his people. The holy hill is a reference to Mount Zion, that place that God had chosen of all the places for his dwelling place. And that's what we are meant to think of when we think of the tabernacle. We are to think of it as God's house. We are to think of it as his tent. Uh, Just as Israel sojourned in tents, so God took up his residence among them. He moved into the neighborhood, as it were, and he set up his tent in the midst of everybody else's tents. Uh, His tent was a tent with three courts, an outer courtyard where all of Israel's worshipers were invited to come with the appropriate offering, an inner court where only God's priestly servants might come, and then a most holy place. Uh, This was, as it were, God's throne room in the midst of his house. And there was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The Bible speaks about the Ark of the Covenant as his footstool. Uh, If heaven is his throne, the earth and the Ark of the Covenant particularly was his footstool. And into that most holy place, only the high priest could enter, and only once a year with the blood of atonement, and only for that moment. He would not stay long. He would sojourn in God's tent just long enough to make atonement for his own sins and for the sins of the people. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The very question presumes something about the holiness of God, doesn't it? It presumes that not just anyone can come into the presence of Yahweh. What sort of person can come, might come? What would be required of the one who would be granted access, not simply to sojourn in God's tent, but even to dwell there? That's the question of the psalm, the question that David uh, considers and calls us to consider. And as we consider it, it moves us then to also consider the conduct required. And we see that laid out for us in verses 2 through 5. The kind of conduct required is put before us both positively and negatively, both in terms of what one must do and in terms of what one must not do. Uh, In verse 2, we see the kinds of things that must be done. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Uh, There's a very real sense, I think, in which this first, uh, he who walks blamelessly, encompasses all of the rest. Because it has to do with our walk. Walking in the Bible is just shorthand for the way that we live, right? Our, our everyday manner of life. Think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Or think of the way that Paul runs through this, this litany of, of walking in Ephesians 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but rather to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Uh, that's why when we talk about our Christian walk, it's sort of Christian shorthand for just speaking about the way that we live. And here the requirement 
of the way that we live, the way that we walk, is blamelessness. Being without blame. The word might also be translated as integrity. The conduct envisioned is without reproach. Someone could not find anything blameworthy in our actions. That we are people of integrity. That there is a, a unity, a matching up of our actions with what is in our hearts. Right? Someone has said that integrity is doing what is right when no one is looking. And this blamelessness, this integrity, is characterized always by doing what is right. It is the righteous person, the person who is committed to doing the right thing. But righteousness is more than just doing the right thing, isn't it? It's doing the right thing in the right way and for the right reasons. Righteousness in the Bible is holistic. It entails not just our actions, but our methods and our motives. Righteousness is something that comes from the heart. And and we can see that emphasis on the heart in what comes next. Uh, The righteous speak the truth from the heart. And putting it this way, the psalmist reminds us that we don't always do this, do we? We all know how to say the right things. We know how to flatter. We know how to deceive. We know how to use our words to gain an advantage. We know how to twist them. But here, the the requirement is of a higher order. It's that we speak truth from the heart. The righteous means what he says and speaks truly. And then the psalmist takes these three things that he says we must positively do, and he parallels them with three things that must not be done. And there's a correspondence here. He does not slander with his tongue. Literally in Hebrews, in Hebrew, excuse me, it says he does not walk with his tongue. It corresponds to that walking in blamelessness. And that's a weird idiom walking with the tongue, but it's a way of speaking about slander. So the ESV translates it well. And he does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. A part of what it means to be blameless is to have control of our tongues. What does James tell us? Nobody can control the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Right? How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The way we use our tongues to speak about others, the way we use our tongues maybe to play out this this idiom, to walk over people, to ruin their reputation. The righteous have no part in that. Uh, That's part of what it means to do evil to our neighbor. Keeping the law is not just about our duty toward God. It's about our duty to our neighbor. And the whole law can be summarized in those two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul takes that up and he says love is the fulfillment of the law because love does no wrong, no evil, 
to its neighbor. And among our neighbors are our friends. The righteous not only do no harm to their neighbor, but they do not take up a reproach against their friends. To take up a reproach means to be harshly critical and accusatory. The righteous are careful to give the benefit of the doubt, and especially to friends who have earned their trust. This is what it means to be blameless. This is what it means to be righteous. This is what God requires of those who would come and stand in his presence. And now in verses 4 through 5, the psalmist takes this relational aspect and he develops it even further as he describes the conduct of the righteous, particularly in relationship to others. So in verse 4, we read that in whose eyes a vile person is despised. There's a little bit of a play on words here in Hebrew. I think we might translate this as, in whose eyes the despicable are despised. The despicable are worthy of being despised. One of the sad realities of sin is that it distorts our ability to see things for what they are and to call things right and true. And it's not hard to look around the world and find myriads of examples, especially in our culture, where, that, where what is vile, what is despicable, what is contrary to God's law, is not despised, but is actually being praised. You probably have myriads of examples coming to your mind. Uh, think of the thief who is, is praised for pulling off the perfect heist. Think of the promiscuous young man who is praised by his peers for his sexual conquests. Think of the transgender who is praised for being courageous and awarded for their so-called heroism. Woman of the year. And while the examples may change over time, the principle is the same as it ever was. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The righteous do not do so. Because the righteous love the law of the Lord, they do not honor what is vile. They despise what is vile. They despise what is despicable. And vice versa. He honors those who fear the Lord. The righteous don't honor the thief and praise him for being such a great thief. They honor those who are honest and trustworthy. Those who work hard to the glory of God, who make an honest living. Those are the ones they honor. It's not the promiscuous man that the righteous honors, but the man who keeps himself pure, the man who makes a covenant with his eyes, who restrains his fantasies, who labors to live within the bounds of sexual purity. That's the kind of man who is the man. I trust you get the point. The righteous reserve honor and praise for those who are praiseworthy. Praiseworthy because their focus 
is the fear of the Lord. There is not only an internal consistency to the righteous, there's also this resolute commitment that we find here. You see that in the rest of verse 4. He swears to his own hurt, and he does not change. It's the language of swearing an oath, right? What we would call a self-maledictory oath. Like the old children's rhyme, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle through my eye. Right? The righteous keeps his word at all costs. He does not swear rashly or vainly. He would go to his death before he would break a promise. He keeps his word even when it hurts to do so because he will do right by others. And doing right by others is the subject of verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest. And he does not take a bribe against the innocent. The righteous don't look to gain off the misfortune of others. If he loans money, it's because he wants to help others, not because he wants to profit off of their misfortune. And because he is interested in what is right and what is just, he's not looking to gain off them. He can't be bribed. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. This is the kind of righteousness that is required to stand in the presence of God, a blameless righteousness, a righteousness that comes from the heart. Well, finally, let's give some consideration to our last point here, the confidence of the righteous. You see that in verse 5c. It's the way the psalm concludes. We find it in the final words, he who does these things shall never be moved. The word uh, may also mean shaken, right? The righteous, uh, the righteous one who walks in this way never has to be anxious or worried in the presence of the Lord. Because he always meets with the Lord's approval. His righteousness not only serves as his credentials to enter into God's presence, but it is also the basis for his confidence to stand there and to abide in God's presence. For that reason, I actually like the ESV's translation here, that he who does these things shall never be moved Uh, If the first verse asks us who can dwell in God's house, the last verse answers that the righteous never have to move out. They're at home with the Lord. Let's go back to the guards. Do you get in? Honestly, who actually meets this criteria? Who may say that they have walked blamelessly in perfect integrity? Who may say that they have done only what was right in the right way for the right reasons? Who may say that they have only ever spoken the truth in their hearts, done no evil to their neighbor, brought no reproach upon their friends? Who can say that they have only ever approved what is right? despised what is vile, honored what is honorable, who can say that they have never broken a promise, 
never sought gain from the misfortune of others, never sought advantage at another's expense. I trust that no one would venture to say that this is true of them. But if perchance you might, you're immediately disqualified by failing to speak the truth from the heart. And what's more, isn't the entire worship system of Israel, with its system of sacrifices and offerings for iniquity, transgression, and sin, aren't they all just designed to prove the opposite? Isn't the whole point to show that there is none righteous? I don't know if you can remember back a month to when we were here looking at Psalm 14, but you might remember these words from Psalm 14, that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek for God. No, they have all turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's the psalm that Paul picks up in Romans and quotes to prove that both Jews and Gentiles alike are all condemned before the face of God. So how do we answer the question? Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Well, remember that I said at the beginning that Psalm 15 begins a, a chiasm, and it, is, it has this parenthetical link with Psalm 24. And in Psalm 24, we begin to get the answer. In Psalm 24, verse 3, the question is asked again, except now it's not who shall sojourn in your tent and, and who shall dwell on your holy hill. Now the question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? And while it gives a similar answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, you'll notice it goes on to say more. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The one who is going to ascend is a glorious king, one for whom the gates open and the ancient doors are lifted up. The surprising development, however, is what is said next. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of comprehensive holiness, this king so righteous that he may enter into the holy places, gated and shut with ancient doors? Who is this king of glory? And the surprising answer comes, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. That King of comprehensive righteousness and holiness who comes and ascends the hill of the Lord to dwell in his tent and stand is marvelously identified with the Lord himself. He is the King of glory. How could this be? What could David have understood about the things that he was writing? How this King from his own line would be identified with the Lord of hosts? Peter says that the Old Testament prophets 
who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours, searched and inquired carefully their own writings, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What David wrote about the anointed king, the king of glory, he writes about King Jesus, the one whose very name is Yahweh saves. The one who comes and becomes that king of comprehensive righteousness. I know you all know me well enough to know that this is where I was going the whole time. But it's good for us to reflect on the righteousness of this king. That this is the one who walks blamelessly who is resolute in his commitment to always do the right thing in the right way with the right motive. This is the one who always spoke the truth, the unadulterated truth, God's truth from the heart. This is the man who did no evil to his neighbor who never brought reproach against his friends, who only ever approved of what was right, and who always despised what was vile. He honored the honorable. He never sought an advantage at the expense of others. And he would rather die than break his promise to his people. And so he would. He would die in order that he might not break his promise to his people. A promise that was sworn way back on that terrible dark day in that beautiful garden. On that day when he promised that a seed of this woman would crush the head of the serpent. A promise that he swore again to Abraham as he swore to his own hurt, walking through the bloody bodies of those sacrificial animals cut in two, that he would do everything necessary for Abraham's salvation, and it would be all of him. It was a promise sworn again from a fiery bush, and then in a Passover lamb, and then in a burnt offering, here to Moses, there to David, and finally to us. And Jesus, our righteous king, will go to the cross before he will break his promise to save his people from their sins. And it is having kept this promise, having offered his righteous life, that life of blamelessness in exchange for our sinful souls, that the gates of heaven, those ancient eternal doors are opened up And the king of glory ascends. Ascends and having made purification for sins, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the words of this psalm are fulfilled. He who does these things shall never be moved. How good does it do your soul to know 
that your king will never be moved off his righteous throne. It is the reason that you can come confidently and boldly into God's presence through the veil of Christ's flesh. And knowing that he will never be moved as long as he stands on that holy hill, you will never be moved. You will never be shaken. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then, above and beyond that, this righteous king begins by his Holy Spirit to work in your heart and to change it and to shape it and conform you to his own righteousness. So that when you show up on Sunday morning, you can come in boldly and confidently and you can worship God with all your heart, in sincerity, in spite of your sins, because your king will never be moved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we are humbled. We are humbled first by your law, which cuts us down and shows us all of our imperfections, all of the ways in which we have fallen short of your glory. It shows us all that our sins deserve. But we are humbled not only by your law, we are humbled even more by the gospel. We are humbled that you should send your only begotten son to live and to walk that life of blameless righteousness in our place and then to take the curse that we deserve. That you would rather die than break that promise that you made so long ago, swearing to your own hurt that you would save your people from your sins. And so you named your son, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Lord, this is our hope and this is our glory. And we ask and pray that standing in this hope and grounded in this righteousness, Lord, that you would shape and conform us into your righteousness, that you would make us more and more like Jesus, that we might come and that we might adore you and that we might be built up and edified in this glorious gospel. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.